Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 372 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. On this episode, we are going to preview the upcoming game against Clemson, and we are going to discuss some Dukies in the NBA. But first, I hope all of you out there had a very Merry Christmas. And as we record on December 26th, 2021, it is Boxing Day in the United Kingdom. But here in the United States is the start of Kwanzaa, the seven-day holiday for African-Americans that operates off seven basic principles of life and atonement. So happy Kwanzaa, everyone. I'm Donald Wine, your host for this episode. And the first principle of Kwanzaa is Umoja, which means unity. And I'm glad to be reunited with my partners in crime, Jason Evans and Sam Klein. Gentlemen, hello. And Sam, how are you today? I am doing well. I have a question for the two of you. In the, in the grand scheme of jelly bean flavors, how do you feel about the sort of uh, like not the standard flavors, but like the popcorn, coconut, sort of weird flavors. Uh, so uh, my stance on jelly beans is no. I'm just not, I'm not no, no entirely on jelly, jelly, jelly beans. beans. Yeah. I, I am no, to, I mean, the popcorn ones, they have a time and a place like movie theaters. Uh, but coconut never really has a place unless yeah, it's combined with something else. I'm uh, I'm I'm strictly on on like fruit flavored jelly beans, and so anyway, I got a a, a like box of co- uh, like color coded uh, flavors, and some of them are the weird ones, and some of them are what I think are the normal ones. So I'm trying to decide if I just ignore all the weird ones entirely. Anyway, this has nothing to do with with the Duke <laughs> game this week. That's just what happens to be on my mind this Sunday morning. Hey, organization is key when it comes to everything, including jelly beans. We, we especially, are Jason yeah, go especially ahead. when you're when you're partially colorblind like I am. Oh, true. That's true. Uh, I I forget that sometimes. Uh, that you it doesn't really come colorblind. up here because blue is not one of the colors I have. Blue a is not with, with. That would be a so. big problem. Yeah, it'd be a problem <laughs> for us. Um, uh, but glad you are are sorting through your jelly beans, Jason Evans. We heard from you, but how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. I I've got somewhat similar of a kind of story. So uh, my, my son, my, both my kids are, are, are back home for the holidays. Um, and uh, my oldest son loves frozen um, juice, you know, bar kind of pop kind of things. Just the really cheap ones that you get like at the dollar store at, or at, you know, Kroger, like you buy a pack of 20 of them, put them in the freezer. Um, I pulled one out the other day and, and I, I was sure it was lemon. It was sort of a yellowish color. I was like, oh, I, you know, I don't eat them that often. I'm like, oh, I'll have a lemon one. Put it in my mouth. Coconut. It was coconut flavored. That's no. an abhorrent. That's that's an abomination. That's, that's it was false advertising terrible. right there. It was terrible. I was Wait, about to so say maybe it was, it was pineapple it was yellow? or mango. It, yeah, was, it was like it was sort of a palish yellow. I mean, it's frozen, so it can lose. I I was sure it was gonna be lemon. Oh, coconut. When you're expecting lemon to get coconut, blah. It's not a good no. Day. Cameron in the background also agrees with you that you can't just switch people up like that when it comes <laughs> to frozen popsicles. Um, but we're not here to discuss jelly beans or popsicles. We're here to discuss Duke basketball. So let's get right into it because Duke will head to Little John Coliseum on Wednesday afternoon to take on the Clemson Tigers. Clemson currently 9-4 and four in the season, 1-1 one and one in the ACC. And of course, we are going to break down what we can expect in this game. Just a little background, they're ranked 38th in Ken Palm. But despite that, if you look at the number of wins that they have, the quality of wins they have are lacking. Uh, their best win is against UVA, which was last Wednesday. They're ranked 71st in Ken Palm. They also have a loss in con- conference play to Miami and non-conference losses to St. Bonaventure, West Virginia, and Rutgers. So those were pretty decent teams, but the teams that they beat 
not quite so decent. So Sam, I want to go to you first. What stands out for you on this Clemson team that Duke should be paying attention to on Wednesday? Well, a couple guys in particular stand out to me. I know that Jason's going to go into their sort of overall Ken Palm stats. I want to focus on a couple players that are interesting. So one, uh, Clemson's had, in general, they've had a fair bit of turnover from last year to this year. The guys who were, for the most part, the guys who were the key contributors last year. And and if you don't remember, uh, in, in a year that Duke fans would like to forget, last year's Duke game against Clemson was like maybe one of the most thorough uh, victories for the Blue Devils. They they dominated Clemson. Uh, at, it was at home. It was a 23-25 point victory. Um, this year, the game is, is at Little John, so it'll probably be very different, but uh, the names are very different for Clemson as well, starting with P.J. Hall, who was a freshman last year. He's a sophomore this year. He's, he's one of their big men, and he barely played last year. He only registered eight minutes against Duke uh, in, in the game last season. But this year, he's one of the most important players for Clemson. So P.J. Hall, is uh, he's, he's scoring a lot. Um, he's pulling down a ton of rebounds, and, and he's all over the floor. He's 6'10", 240. So this is uh, a guy that, that Duke is going to have to focus on in the post and uh, is, is, has just made an enormous leap this year. So that and is hey, one of the... Sam, Sam just yes. really quick, and then you can continue. You can already probably put P.J. Hall's, at least his first couple initials, on the Most Improved Player Award in the ACC this year. I, I mean, the leap he has taken from last year is really stunning. And by the way, he shoots threes. Like that, he'll, he'll get the ball in the perimeter, and he'll ta- he won't put it on the floor, but he'll, he'll take threes. Um, and and that's, that's something that you never would have seen from him last year. He hasn't made a ton of them, but he's taking them. And in general, yeah. he, he's, a, he's a fairly efficient scorer, not from three. But, but at least from the inside. So I, and Jason, I love that you brought up how much of an improved player he was. I think I, I highlighted that a little bit coming in, but the other guy for Clemson that's very important, who is a, is a newcomer because he's a transfer, but is somebody who also has made a huge impact, probably much greater than, than the coaching staff expected is David Collins, who is a, uh, I guess he's a forward. He's, he's, he's listed at 6'4", 215, but boy, can the dude rebound. Um, he's a big time rebounder. He transfers into Clemson as a senior from, um, I believe he came from Youngstown state, uh, or sorry, he he's from Youngstown. He, he transferred in from South Florida. So not, not a low major, um, South Florida, uh, you know, plays in the AAC is a, is a, is a good AAC or the, or the Big East. Now I, now I can't keep them straight. Uh, the extended, the extended original Big East, at least. Uh, so David Collins, uh, transfers in from South Florida, where he was an effective player, um, but was by no means sort of a, a star for them, has really morphed into one this year for Clemson. Um, he's averaging 11 point, over 11 points and over seven rebounds a game for a guy who is uh, for a guy who's 6'4". So uh, David Collins is also some and, and by the way, those numbers much better than they were in in years past. Um he only averaged three and a half rebounds uh, a game last season, and he now shoots three pointers at a. He doesn't shoot the. He doesn't shoot a ton, but he has made a fair number of three pointers this year. So he's also a vastly improved player, and I'm sure that when Clemson coach Brad Brownell was out, you know, scoping the transfer portal, that when he picked this guy up, it was not like, oh, he's all of a sudden going to become a star for us. But he's going to be a very useful player. He's obviously experienced. This is his fifth year playing in college. But um, as you sort of said, Jason, 
the story for Clemson this year is, is vast improvements from guys who maybe they, I don't know if they expected to be this good between PJ Hall and David Collins. And then my other sort of observation about them is that even though they have a couple guys who are real standouts, the minutes really get well distributed among their top eight at Clemson. Nobody's averaging 30 minutes a game for them. So you will see a lot of substitutions. You'll see different looks from them. Uh, I'm not sure if, if they're a tournament team this year, they're, they're one of the handful of ACC teams. I think that we would say is, you know, can, can make themselves a tournament team either by, by beating Duke or by beating Virginia tech, by beating, you know, a handful of each other. Um, Nothing that really stands out from their non-conference play that would indicate Yes, Clemson is definitely going back to the tournament after having a pretty good season last year. Yeah, and it seems like with this team, they have a lot of things that they do decently, but not quite well. Uh, But there's one thing, at least from the advanced metrics, that they do terribly. And I want to lead Jason with this. Uh, Jason, I want you to discuss some of these metrics that Clemson has, but I want to start with this one. One of my favorite metrics of all time, defensive free throw percentage which really means one thing teams are making their free throws when Clemson sends them to the line, aren't they? It's, it's a crazy number. This is insane. You ready for this? Clemson's opponents hit 79.7% of their free throws, almost 80% of their free throws. That's an absurd. That's just ridiculous. There's that's unsustainable. Uh, you know, we talk, there's some of these stats out there that we talk. It would about. be good if it lasts for one more game. Yeah, one more. Yeah, game, I'd love right? that. Right, eighty uh, percent. There's some of these stats out there that you look at, and and yeah, they get measured, but they aren't. They sort of aren't real because the team has no control over them. I'm I'm going to be very clear about something. When an opposing team steps to the free throw line, you have no control over whether or not they hit their free throws. <laughs> Even in Cameron with our fans doing their darndest to get in people's heads, there's just, there's very little you can do to control a free throw. And somehow Clemson's opponents are like two orders of magnitude (laughs) outside the expected range of what, like if they were hitting 75%, that'd be really high. And you'd be like, wow, that's great. 79, almost 80% is just an absurd number for, for Clemson's opponents to be hitting. And uh, so the, the other sort of interesting metrics on them, you know, like Donald mentioned, they're 38th in Ken Palm. The ACC is way down this year. Folks, uh, they are basically like, they're tied with UNC to be the third, fourth best team in the ACC. Let's be very clear. The, the ACC is Duke at the very top and then Virginia Tech. And then there, there are several teams that are right in there. And, and Clemson is absolutely one of them. Um, uh, in fact, Ken Pomeroy says that this game, the game against UNC at UNC and the game at Florida state are the only games left on Duke's schedule where Duke won't be a two to one favorite to win, but you know, better than a 66% chance of winning. Um, now Duke is still favored in all those games, like a, around 62, 63% chance to win. But, but arguably after Virginia tech, who everyone says is the second best team in the ACC, Clemson may be the next best team in the ACC, and we're playing them on the road. I mean, Duke is starting out with a, with a tough ACC slate from that, from that standpoint. Um, and, and really quick, before I get into some of the other metrics, I, I do want to point out something about Clemson. I think their record is, is deceptive. Uh, they've, they've, the good teams they've played that they've lost to, they had a real chance to win those games. They were leading West Virginia by seven points with seven minutes to go. And West Virginia went on a 17 to three run 
to close that game out. They were beating a, a pretty good St. Bon, Bonaventure's good. They're beating a good St. Bonaventure team by 12 points with about 10 minutes to go. And the Bonnies went on a 21 to two run to beat Clemson. And then they were beating Miami by six points with five minutes to go. In fact, Ken Pomeroy thought Clemson was like 95% to win that game. And Miami went on a 15 to three run in the final few minutes to win it. Are you sensing a theme here? <laughs> Clemson has had big second half leads in these games. And, and yet they've, they've blown it. They've lost these, you know, they're susceptible to teams putting a run on them. A so, week don't, ago. so don't lose hope. Yeah, when, exactly. You know, if, if Duke is down eight or 10 points with, with five minutes left, because uh, Clemson is, is apparently able to fold very yeah. easily. Oh, in a big, big way. I, I, and uh, a week ago when they had, they had a nice double digit lead on Virginia in the middle of the second half. I, I, I have a friend who's a Clemson fan and he texted me. And I was, I was like, Hey, you guys have beaten Virginia. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, <laughs> he goes, I don't want to hear anything. <laughs> He's like, we can blow any, he goes, this team can blow any lead. They are clearly shell-shocked there in Clemson after blowing all those other games, but they held on. In fact, they built on it, and that win over UVA is – they beat UVA by 17. That's like beating a normal team by almost 30 because there's so few possessions against Virginia. So that's a really impressive result. Okay, all right. I'm going to get to the advanced metrics now. I apologize. Uh, this Clemson team, um, the thing they do best is their offense. They're the 23rd best offensive efficiency team in the country, and that is because – this team will hit three-pointers. We talked a few days ago about Virginia Tech hitting 40% of their threes um, on the season, and that being a big focus for Duke. And Duke held Virginia Tech to their worst three-point shooting game of the season. Clemson's even better from three than Virginia Tech is. Clemson hits 41% of their threes in the season. They are the fifth best, number five, of all the teams in the country, the fifth best three-point shooting team in the entire country. They do a pretty good job of holding onto the ball. Don't make a lot of turnovers. Um, they, uh, they, 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 don't, they don't give up many steals. That's sort of how they hold onto it. And, and that's something that Duke is pretty good at. So, so that's going to be a focus, I think, for Duke is trying to see if they can turn Clemson over a little bit. Uh, Clemson's a good defensive rebounding team. They only allow about 24% of missed shots to be offensively rebounded. So, uh, you know, that's a, a strength for them. So what are they bad at? They, they don't get many steals or turnovers on, on, on defense. And, and we already know Duke is great at holding on to the ball. I mean, that's one of our strong points. Clemson is not a team that's taking the ball away from the other team. So expect Duke to have another really good game in, in that department. Um, they, they aren't very big. And, they, and, and P.J. Hall, their only big man, is not very bouncy. So they're not very good at blocking shots. They also get their shots blocked a lot. I mean, I don't know how much Mark Williams plays against them. I think PJ Hall is a, is a nice matchup for Mark Williams. He, he does go outside a little bit, but it's not like he's going to put the ball on the floor and go around Mark. So this may be a game that Mark Williams is able to play more. Um, I think he's a fairly decent matchup with PJ Hall. And, and if that's the case, Mark Williams could end up blocking a lot of shots against this Clemson team. And then I did want to mention they're very experienced. They're one of the more experienced teams in the country. We, we talked about P.J. Hall just being a sophomore. Other than P.J. Hall, the next six guys – I'm sorry, the next five guys who play a lot are all juniors and seniors, and a couple of them are, are fifth-year seniors. So, uh, you know, that's, that, 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 that's a strong point for them. This is a team that's experienced, um, and, and I think they've got a pretty good chance of making the NCAA tournament 
Um, Pomeroy, Ken Pomeroy expects them to finish 20 and 11 on the regular season and 12 and eight in the ACC. If they go 12 and eight and they just like win one game in the ACC tournament, this Clemson club is going to end up making the, the NCAA tournament. So I, 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 this is a good team. This is an important matchup for Duke. To your point, Jason, about wondering, I guess, whether, uh, whether Mark Williams is able to, to kind of keep up with, with PJ Hall or, or how much he spends time on him. Other than Hall, Clemson's not a very big team. Hunter Tyson's the only other exactly uh, the only other guy in the rotation that's that, that's at least six eight. So I do wonder if we're going to see a bit of a repeat from the Virginia Tech game where Duke wasn't able to keep two big men on the floor and often was going small, especially in the second half. I'm curious if if Duke has to roll that game plan out again against Clemson or if they're able to impose more of their own playing style and allow. Mark Williams, Paulo Bancaro, and and Theo John to split the bulk of the minutes at the four and five. Well, well, and I'll say this: um, when they go to Hunter Thompson, uh, Hunter Tyson, sorry, um, <laughs> Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter Thompson, not on on the not on this basketball team. <laughs> team. Uh, I've got Gonzo writers on the brain. Now, when they when they go to Hunter Tyson at center for PJ Hall, which isn't a lot of the time, you know, but when they do that, I think you're going to see Duke bring Mark Williams off the floor almost immediately because Hunter Tyson. Um, is very capable and very comfortable going outside and and shooting three pointers, and he 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 can put the ball on the floor. So when they go small, Duke will match them going small immediately. I think. I think when it comes to Duke and and with these advanced metrics, there's two things that stand out to me for the specific reason that we're playing at Little John, taking care of the basketball for Duke and limiting the three points uh, three point shots of Clemson on the other end. Because Little John is traditionally one of the places that we've experienced some bad play from Duke in the past. We've had some blow. We've been blown out of Little John Coliseum at points in the recent past. So I obviously don't want that to continue. The great thing is that we don't have the students back uh, for Clemson. I mean, students kind of stick around campus a little bit differently than they do at Duke, uh, but it won't be the same energetic crowd that will normally be there would students be in session. So you have that part. But there's also the fact of taking care of the basketball and limiting their threes limits momentum for Clemson. And that's where they get a lot of their push is from that home crowd. When when they're playing Duke, when they get that momentum, just like Ohio State in the second half, that last five minutes of the game, the momentum was a killer. And we need to limit that. And so if we can get that lead, which I think we all expect it to happen at some point, in this game and we get that run that all Clemson fans think is going to happen. We need to just go ahead and take them out of their misery at that point. Don't let them back into the game because if we do that momentum with the three threes combined with taking care of the basketball, that's going to be a killer and and it's going to make it where this is going to be a way closer game than we want. Donald, you brought up the little John factor and even with not all the students there, I am sure that students Clemson students who are from Charlotte from upstate, even uh-huh. maybe from Atlanta, are going to be in town for this because oh, absolutely! You know, like if they had Christmas yesterday, it's very easy to 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 get back to campus and go to this game. And of course, the Duke game is always a poll. So I would not underestimate the Clemson crowd's ability to bring it. This is you know, if you had me rank the ACC in terms of tough places to play from like my perspective as a Duke fan, Clemson's probably one of the the five or six you know toughest ones along with Virginia Tech. Uh, which Duke doesn't have to play at this year, but we talked about last week when we were playing them in Cameron. So this is going to be a game where 
Duke probably gets to watch a lot of tape from the Virginia Tech game in terms of playing against a team that, that brings a similar level of size and then also reviewing tape from the Ohio State game and trying to get back in the feeling of what's it like when you're in front of a, of a hostile crowd like this and, and what happens to Jason's point, Clemson's good at, at, at getting up. How do you, how do you turn that around on them and make it so that that home crowd doesn't overwhelm you? Because the other thing here, we'll, we'll end up mentioning this a, a few more times throughout the season. Duke does not have many opportunities for high quality wins. Yep. It's not that Clemson mm-hmm. is, is one of the best teams in the country, but they are, as Jason said, they're one of the best teams left on Duke's schedule. So it is very important for Duke to beat teams like Clemson, teams like Florida State, teams like UNC to guarantee that Duke holds on to at least a two seed, you know, if not a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, <laughs> the wrinkle in all this that, that we're all wondering right now is, does the game even get played? Uh, COVID right. is causing cancellations left and right with guys. Uh, you know, a lot of these guys on these different teams have gone home for Christmas and travel is a time when COVID loves to spread. And the, the new Omicron variant, just it, it's more transmissible. It's way more transmissible than the other versions that we've had in the past. I, I don't want folks to be frustrated or upset if they hear about a Duke player getting COVID. I, I, I think it's almost unavoidable. I, I've, heard, I've heard epidemiologists say that almost virtually every one of us is going to get this one because it's so transmissible and it's, it's spreading all over the country so fast. So I, I, I really wonder, you know, I, I hope, God, I hope we get games in, but I, I, I think we're going to see Duke games get canceled in the next couple of weeks, whether because of us or because of our opponent. And it's already affected us in a couple of ways. Obviously we had the, the game that was the game that was the game that was that eventually became us playing Elon. Uh, a couple weekends ago or last weekend, uh, Nolan Smith is in the COVID protocols or has been and has missed the last couple of games. We don't uh, mind you for those out there. When we say enter the COVID protocols, we don't know if he has it. The COVID protocols can be for a direct exposure or something like that. So I don't want to speculate as to whether or not he has it, but we have not seen him the past couple of games because he's been in those protocols. And I think when it comes to Duke this next week, is going to be the key. As you mentioned, Jason, people coming back from Christmas, getting back into practicing. Duke, as we know, has very strict standards when it comes to testing and making sure everyone is good to go before practices will resume. And hopefully, yes, we will may we may have some times where we may be missing a couple of players or we may have to postpone the game, not necessarily because of anything on Duke's side, but as we've noticed that every other team in college basketball seems to be experiencing this uh, where they're going on COVID pauses and, and having uh, a lot of issues within their program. So uh, make no mistake, this is we're, we're back to last year in the sense that we are preparing for a game that we hope, keyword hope, takes effect and, and, pl- and goes off on Wednesday afternoon. But this is another one of those times when it's nice to be a fan of a team in a, in a conference that has a little bit more resource the way that the ACC uh-huh. does, because the ACC could come back and say, look, we're going back to testing the players virtually every day, the way that it seems like Duke is doing now, because they want, it's not at this point, it's not even like, it's just for the health of the players, which of course it is, but also for the integrity of the schedule, because if you can keep guys, uh, if you can keep them testing and, you know, if you have to, if you have to hold out one or two or three players from the roster for a particular game, at least it has a lower likelihood of knocking out the whole game. If you're going, you know, a week between tests where 
the whole team, if, if the whole team is practicing together for a week and one person has it, they're probably all or mostly getting it. If you're able to, to isolate them, you know, every day, not necessarily keep the, the players in hotel rooms the way that they were last year, but if you're at least able to limit the exposure, maybe you can keep more of the schedule intact uh, as well as trying to keep, you know, more of the players uh, out of the potential for, for more serious uh, medical outcomes. And it is important and worth noting that last year, the ACC built the, built the schedule in a way that would have allowed them to make up games, um, you know, had teams miss games for, for COVID. Uh, they, they built it, you know, in, in certain segments that where there were certain days where they sort of had, you know, said, okay, this is a perfect time when we could slip in a game here or there. This year's schedule is not built that way. This year's schedule is built with games spread out across the week without, you know, specific days that are sort of off. And, and as a result, if you lose a game to COVID, which it's already happened, we already saw a, a, a BC wake game got lost to COVID. Um, uh, you know, it's going to be way harder to make these games up. There's supposed to be 20 games in the ACC schedule. I, I suspect there are going to be multiple ACC teams that play 17, 18. Uh, I, I really think, I think that once we start testing these kids coming back from Christmas, teams are going to lose games. Jason, the question that I think we all have is, will we play Florida state this season? Because we didn't last year. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> we haven't seen them in two years, so we will see what happens to that. But honestly, it's one of those things where again, hope is the key word here. We're preparing for this game. Let's hope it goes off and everyone on both sides uh, remain safe throughout the holiday season. We will leave it there though. Again, early afternoon tip on Wednesday, 2 PM Eastern at little giant Coliseum. Let's hope the blue devils can take care of business on the road. We will, uh, pause. By, the way, by the way, by the way, I hate that it's a 2 p.m. tip. If it wasn't, if it wasn't, if this was an evening tip, like it was originally supposed to, uh, they moved it because uh, like Clemson, is it Clemson? Did they move it for Clemson football or something? I forget. Why uh, bowl games. Yeah. Bowl game bowl schedules. Games? Yeah. Um, if, if it was at in the evening, I would be able to drive up and I, cause it's oh, only true. two hours from Atlanta, but I, two o'clock in the afternoon, I, I have a, I have a day job. <laughs> and I, I can't mean, make it. Jason, just take a long, long lunch break. Yeah, that won't work. That doesn't work at CNN. <laughs> like an all afternoon break. Yeah, it, it's a bit. Oh, sorry. Traffic. Yeah. Atlanta traffic. Just blame it on that. You can always blame Atlanta traffic. I, um, I, I can I can be off at two o'clock. The problem is I can't get off at like 11 or 12, which is when I would need to leave my house to get to Clemson. That makes more sense. But yes, so 2 p.m. tip off. Uh, Jason, along with most of us, will have to watch that one at home or at work uh, on your on your mobile device. So again, let's hope they can take care of business. Now we're going to pause for a quick break. On the other side, we get into some NBA talk. Stick around. All right, gentlemen, it is time to get into the brotherhood. And, and by that, I mean the members of the brotherhood that are in the NBA. And as we've seen over the past few seasons, there are a ton of them in the NBA. By my count, I think at this point, and, and it's been changing daily, 26 members of the brotherhood are on NBA rosters right now. And so since yesterday was Christmas, and that's kind of one of the highlights of the NBA calendar, it's a good time to kind of discuss a couple of Blue Devils. So what we've done is each of us have taken either a couple of players or a couple of teams that may have multiple blue devils. And so Jason, I want to go to you first, because since yesterday was Christmas, it meant we got to see a prominent blue devil play for the defending NBA champion. So 
talk to us about Grayson Allen. Yeah, uh, Grayson's a really good story this season. Uh, in the offseason, he got traded to Milwaukee, and they promptly signed him to a two-year, $17 million extension. He was at the end of his rookie deal, and he was extension eligible. And there are some people who questioned, um, uh, you know, sort of what role Grayson would be playing on this team and why Milwaukee had, had given him, you know, that's not huge money by NBA standards, it's huge money by <laughs> normal person standards, $17 million, I'd take it. Um, but, but, you know, but, but it's, it is still a sizable chunk of change. People are a little bit like, you know, why, why is Milwaukee investing in Grayson Allen? Because they, they already had Pat Connaughton and Dante DiVincenzo at shooting guard. And you were sort of like, you know, Hey, you're paying 17 million for another shooting guard, but DiVincenzo was hurt at the start of the season and Grayson outbattled uh, Pat Connaughton for the starting job. And, and he's really held on to it nicely. He has been a consistent starter all year. He is really benefiting from Giannis uh, and the other guys in this team who get double teamed a lot. When they get double teamed, they find Grayson in the corner and he leads Milwaukee. Again, Grayson Allen leads Milwaukee in three-pointers taken and three-pointers made. He's hitting better than 40% from long range. That is what they're paying him to do. Grayson Allen has turned into a three and D player in the NBA. He plays scrappy defense. And he hits three pointers and Milwaukee loves him for it. His teammates really like him because he plays so hard. They admire his effort and his passion. He struggled a bit in December. So far this month hasn't been his best month. He was averaging close to 14 points per game in October, and November. He's cooled off lately. He's only averaging around 10 points per game in, de in December, but he's already having the best season of his career. He's really justifying the investment that, that Milwaukee made in him when they gave him that extension. And it has to be exciting for Grayson to be playing a big role, again, a starter and a key player, 30 plus minutes per game on, on a team that is a legit championship contender, the defending champs. And frankly, they look as good as, as anybody in the East, I guess, even including the, the, you know, crazy New Jersey nets. Um, uh, he, he, Grayson has a great chance to be a significant player going deep in the playoffs. And then I also wanted to mention, just cause I was looking at Milwaukee a little bit, um, you know, we said they signed Javin Delorier to a 10 day contract the other day. Uh, the first game he was eligible to play and he did not play at all. That's not surprising. Um, uh, again, he's still making $53,000 for 10 days of work. Um, but Milwaukee also has another dookie. They have Rodney hood on their roster. Rodney's 29 and that should be, you know, he should still sort of be in his prime, but it feels like his career is really starting to wind down. Um, this guy was a consistent double-digit scorer until he tore his Achilles in 2019. And Achilles tears are really tough to come back from. And Rodney just, he has not been the same since then. Um, his minutes seem to be dwindling wherever he goes. His three-point shot, um, which was up around 40% for most of his career, is barely at 30% last year in this season. Um, he, he He's scoring like maybe three points a game from Milwaukee. He just doesn't seem like... Um, he's part of their plans. He's so far back in the rotation that there are games where he doesn't, doesn't play at all. Um, I, you know, look, uh, Rodney's made more than $27 million in his NBA career, so we shouldn't feel too badly for him. But it, it feels to me like um, his days of being a significant NBA player are behind him. So I was looking at all the Dukies on Milwaukee, and I just wanted to mention Rodney. Um, I, you know, I, I wish it would go better for him, but, but those Achilles injuries can just be a killer especially in the NBA. I mean, because of the explosiveness and the lateral quickness that you need and all of that requires 
in Achilles, a, a very functioning one. And, you know, we, we've even seen it from, you know, the greatest ever, some of the greatest ever do it, Kobe Bryant tore his Achilles and came back and wasn't quite the Kobe that we expected, uh, which is why he ended up retiring at a certain point. We also, you know, it took him to, he was like 36 before he blew his Achilles out. So it, it happens and, and really it, it, it's unfortunate because he, he was a great player to watch in the NBA. And I think maybe this is probably the last year we get to see him uh, contribute for anything, but hopefully it ends uh, with them going deeper in the playoffs. Because as I said, the Bucks are the defending NBA champions. They they just got Giannis back from COVID, and they look pretty good for at least the last half of the fourth quarter yesterday. So uh, I think having those three on the team uh, will really be a boon. Sam, I know you want to talk about uh, a Curry uh, that is out there that's doing well. Not Steph, who just set the three point record, but his brother's also doing very well. Seth Curry, tell us about him. Yeah, I, I was. Uh, I, I keep being excited by Seth Curry's career because his first few years in the NBA, he was barely a contributor. And the last couple of years, it's just been like all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, he's been doing this for a few years now, but that he is now considered like one of the elite outside threats in the NBA. And it's no different this year. He, he signed a, a big extension or a big contract with Philadelphia last year, but uh, for the Sixers this year, he's starting every night. Um, he's playing 35 minutes a game and uh, his, his three point percentage is not quite as prolific as it was last year, but his overall uh, is true shooting and his effective field goal percentage are at, at record highs for this season. And he's in his age 31 year. So Jason was highlighting that Rodney hood was probably on the, you know, back half of his, of his athletic prime. Although the Achilles injury probably, you know, sapped what was left of that prime. Seth Curry's 31. He's on the wrong side of 30. And it, it seems like he's still getting better, which is just so cool to see for, for his career. Obviously his brother is, is not letting up, which tells you hopefully that, you know, if they've got, they've got the same genes that, that Seth has the ability to, to keep playing maybe to the end of his thirties, because it feels like if he's not, if, if he's only just maintaining, if not getting better every year, he has become such an important part of, of the Sixers. And then another guy who is in, you know, if you're, if you're zoomed into the part of the, the standings where we're looking at the, the Eastern conference uh, race for getting into the play in tournament and the teams that are right around there, lots of key Duke contributors in that part of the NBA standing. So not necessarily the, the teams that are all the way at the top. I'm not looking at the bucks, like, like Jason was talking about, but the Sixers are right in there for uh, for that for that seven to ten range for those teams in the Eastern Conference. Another team that's in there that's getting a key contribution from a Duke player is is the Toronto Raptors and and Gary Trent Jr., who was traded to Toronto last year. So he was, if you remember, he was playing for Portland until uh, the middle of or late in last season. Portland's roster is a little bit too crowded for Gary Trent, given that he has proven that he is a a starting, you know, shooting guard, small forward type. And Portland just has has too many of those guys on the roster already. So they traded him to Toronto and Toronto has been really putting Gary Trent to work. He's starting basically every game for them these days and uh, is also shooting, you know, like like Curry, some of the best shooting of his career uh, coming out of Gary Trent this season in Toronto. Um, the Raptors are not quite where they were a couple of years ago when they were on top of the NBA. But Gary Trent has... Uh, has emerged as a as a really key piece for them the way that he was in Portland but now he's he's getting even more minutes uh, he's expected to 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 be like finishing games the way that you know 
Portland uh, has Damian Lillard. So uh, that's uh, you don't need you don't need a lot of other firepower when you have Dame Lillard on the floor. Uh, uh, Gary Trent Jr. is is playing that that key role here. And by the way, if we look back, Seth Curry was a guy who wasn't drafted out of Duke. This is where I think these these two players kind of come together in my mind. Seth Curry wasn't drafted out of Duke. Uh, it wasn't clear, even though his brother was basically already a star by the time Seth got to the league. It wasn't clear that Seth was going to be able to, quote unquote, make it in the league. And he has proven that he really belongs. Gary Trent was a second round pick, uh, very overshadowed in his draft year by Marvin Bagley and by Wendell Carter. And I think Gary Trent to this point has been the best guy um, from that cohort in the NBA, has has been extremely successful uh, he's not he's not a small player. I think that that, you know, you could have wrongly assumed that Gary Trent was was maybe not big enough, but he's really a six, 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 seven guy, which at shooting guard these days is is a totally acceptable size. Um, very, very good shooter. He's a good defender. He's been he's been kind of everything uh, from the perimeter in his NBA career. So it's been very cool to see him emerge uh you know, in it's still fairly early uh, in in his NBA career. He's just 23 years old, so a uh, long way to go for Gary Trent. You know, really quick on Seth. Um, so you, he, he's having the best season of his career. He's averaging better than 16 points per game, and his contract that he signed he signed a, a four year, 32 million dollar contract a couple of years ago, and it it comes up at the end of next season he could really make some serious bank because there's such a premium on guys who are great three-point shooters like he is. Um, I mean, a career 44% three-point shooter in the NBA is really, really impressive. Uh, he, he could, you could easily see Seth getting, I don't know, 12, 15 plus million dollars on a four-year deal. At and the if end he's, of next season. And, and, and if he's able to stay healthy for the next few years, he could end up stringing together like an $80 million you know, career oh, yeah. in the oh, NBA, yeah. just being a shooter uh, yep. for a guy who didn't go drafted. That's, that's pretty good. I will say this. Uh, this is how high he's risen in the last couple of years this year on those like Friday night ESPN nationally televised game warriors versus 76ers. They didn't talk about Curry and Draymond green versus uh, Embiid and someone else. They had the Curry tracker. And they had the Curry tracker of how many points the brothers had against each other. And I'll tell you what, Seth Curry had that lead until literally the very last shot of the game when Steph hit a three-pointer to win 25-24. to 24. So he held the toe with the greatest shooter that has ever lived, which happens to be his brother. And literally to the end of the game, when that Curry tracker was being shown, Seth Curry was always ahead of Steph until the very last shot of the game. So he's been doing very, very well when it comes to that because – in a, a league of stars, they took time to talk about Seth Curry as well. It means Seth Curry has risen to the point where he's worth discussing for an entire basketball game. And honestly, he's been playing well to do it. How, how much would it suck to be? I mean, he's arguably, I think, one of the five best shooters in, in, in the world, in the NBA and in the world right now, Seth Curry. And, and yet he's always second best to his brother. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, he's, he might, honestly, he's overshadowed by, by Steph and his dad because yeah. Del Curry was also yeah, a prolific shooter. Great. There was the one year where Seth went deeper in the playoffs than Steph did. And Steph was, uh, was in the stands and they, and they put the camera on him during the game. And it just said, uh, Seth Curry's Stephen Curry, Seth Curry's brother in, yeah. the, uh, <laughs> in, in the label. I like that. Yeah. Uh, well guys, I want to take you all the way down. All the way down. Wait, wait. 
all the way down to the bottom of the NBA. That is being held by my Detroit Pistons, but we do have a bright side of the Detroit Pistons. His name is Frank Jackson, uh, who has been doing very, very well for the Pistons this year. 10.7 points per game in 22.6 minutes per game has really shined as the primary point guard and ball handler for the second unit for the Pistons this year has even had a chance to start a couple of games with Cade Cunningham at the beginning of the season was out due to injury. And then just the other day, because Cade Cunningham was in COVID protocols, he got the start there. So he's basically become the leader of that second unit. And speaking of COVID protocols, you know, Frank Jackson has been doing very, very well. We now have a new piston. His name is Cassius Stanley. Uh, because of COVID protocols, we've had to sign a lot of G League players over the last few days. And one of them was Cassius Stanley, who was signed actually just yesterday. So Merry Christmas to Cassius Stanley. Uh, he's been actually playing very well for the Motor City Crews, which is the G League affiliate for the Pistons. 9.6 points per game, 22.4 minutes per game, 4.5 rebounds per game. And really, it, 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 the, the stats don't really tell the story. He's been one of the guys that has been very dependable for the crews. He's been one of the guys that the, whose numbers called time and time again, along with Derek Walton Jr. These guys both got called up to the Pistons, and now they get to at least have a latte. If you remember, Cassius Stanley was drafted last year by the Indiana Pacers. He played their first season before moving over to the Pistons. Farm, I, I say farm system like we're in baseball, but theoretically the farm system or the G League team. So Frank Jackson, Cassius Stanley, two guys you get to watch over the next 10 days. But for Frank Jackson... He signed a two-year deal right before the season started and now is, is really firmly planted into the rotation. And I think as the Pistons go through a lot of changes and, and there's going to be a lot of trades and a lot of you know draft picks over the next few years for the Pistons, Frank Jackson is going to be that guy who's going to be called on as one of the young vets of this team as we start to rebuild. So I'm really looking forward to seeing more of Frank Jackson in a Pistons uniform. So, so that two-year deal that Frank Jackson signed, Donald, you're, you're correct to point that out. It's a big deal for him. He's not someone, even though he's been in the NBA for several years, he's sort of been on the you know bottom end of rosters, and, and he was never a first-round draft pick, so he, he has never made sort of big NBA money. He signed a two-year $6 million deal, like $3 million, a little more than $3 million each season, which, again, great money for normal people, not huge money for the NBA. But an important thing to note about that contract, it, but, and by the way, really good money for him. The most he's ever made um, uh, it was about you know, 1.5. So, so to get $3 million this year from the Pistons, huge for him. Um, the, the next year of the deal is a team option. Um, and, and the fact that you're pointing out he's playing well and, and is seen as one of the leaders and, and part of the future of the Pistons, that's a big deal for him because it means they will pick up the second year, which is $3.1 million. Um, and, and, you know, Frank, Frank obviously is hoping at some point to, to score with a, a big multi-year deal, you know, for, for seven, eight digits, <laughs> seven digits, I guess. Uh, no, eight. Yeah. Eight would be 10 million, right? Eight Sorry, would be I'm, nice. I'm yeah. Digits, right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, and, and I think it, it, it's very possible for him, but the step one to that is, uh, is getting that, that second year picked up and getting another three mil. Yeah, I think when it comes to him, he he's doing just fine in doing that. If he can get his assists up, which honestly, there's two parts of the assist, the pass and the shot. 
Pistons aren't making a lot of baskets. So even though he's moving the ball around, the second unit is not making a lot of baskets. So as long as we can get his stats, uh, his assist line up a little bit, I think that's really going to help him moving forward when it comes to renegotiating some of these deals down the line. But like I said, I think, I mean, Jason, you mentioned that he was a, a second round pick. He was literally the first pick of the second round when he got drafted. So he's one of those guys that is first first round talent that has never really gotten a chance. And really he's using that as a chip on the shoulder. When he got traded to the Pistons from the Pelicans, he said, I'm just going to go here and work. And he's been doing that to the point where last year he was on the G league team, moved up, got this contract that's two years. And now he's shining for the second unit of the Pistons, which can carve out a nice career. If you can do that for, you know, five, six years. So hopefully we see a lot more Frank Jackson down the line, but Jason, I want to switch to you because you also have a hometown team that has multiple Pistons on it. Tell me about the Atlanta Hawks. Yeah, you said multiple Pistons. You meant to say multiple Dukies, but... <laughs> Pistons, Dukies, same thing. <laughs> They're all the brotherhood. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, uh, multiple Dukies here in Atlanta on the, on the Hawks. And I, I want to talk about Cam Reddish. I've been talking a lot about contracts. This is, uh, this is a, a big contract year for Cam Reddish. He is extension eligible uh, at the end of this season. And the Atlanta Hawks have a big decision to make on Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter, who are two guys who, when they are healthy, um, look every bit like they are very significant NBA players who are deserving of, of big money, um, you know, of 10 million plus per season. The problem is neither one of them can get healthy. And uh, they've been just injured a lot. And so the Hawks have this big decision about whether they keep one of them or both of them and, and what do they do. So it was big, I think, for Cam to have thus far been relatively healthy this season, you know, compared to what he's shown uh, in the past. There, there are a lot of folks who think the Hawks may decide not to give Cam a big extension. Um, they, they've got a lot, of, a lot of young guys who are getting big extensions and, and they can't pay everybody. But um, Cam is doing his best to show them that if they pass on him, that would be a mistake. His three-pointer, Cam Reddish's three-pointer that was very inconsistent earlier in his career, both at Duke and in the NBA, uh, has really improved this season. He's hitting a career-high 38% from three, and um, he still has those long arms that allow him to get steals and be a real pest on defense. And, uh, and Cam's done a nice job of cutting down on his fouls. Like, he's, he's playing smarter defense than he has in the past, um, and, and he is really showing that he uh, has a chance to be a very significant NBA player. He's had a number of games where he's put up big scoring numbers in, in six of the Hawks first seven games this season, he scored 15 plus points and he was over 20 points in several of those games. Just a couple nights ago against Orlando, Trey young, the Hawks best player was out with COVID and they sort of had to count on cam to do extra. He scored 34 points, 34 points in an NBA game against the Orlando magic. I guess playing the Orlando magic is an NBA game sort of barely an NBA. <laughs> hey, you get to go to Disney. It's a road trip. Donald yeah, right, just exactly. spent five minutes talking about the Pistons. See what so. I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> and nobody, but and nobody worse than us. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I mean, the, the Hawks have been using Cam as, as a major scoring threat, especially in their second unit. They, uh, there are a lot of people who think he should be starting, but they really like him on that second unit um, as sort of the lead scorer on that unit. And he's, he's been thriving in that role this year. The, like I said, the key for him is just staying healthy and not taking bad shots. Cam sometimes... Uh, you know, he, he sometimes gets lazy on offense and takes the first bad shot he can find, often a long two-point shot, and, and he needs to stop. <laughs> Just stop doing that. If he, if he is injury-free and keeps his shooting percentages where they are now, 
Um, I think he's going to get paid uh, in the offseason. I think the Hawks will realize they, they just have to pay him. And then as long as I'm talking about the Hawks, I want to really quickly mention Jalen Johnson, um, former Dookie, even though he quit on the team. Uh, he has mostly played this year for the Hawks G League affiliate. Um, uh, but with a half a dozen Hawks in COVID protocols right now, uh, I sort of thought, hey, maybe Jalen's about to get his chance because he's not in the COVID protocols. They, they called him up to the main roster. He's on the Hawks team just the other day. The Hawks had a game. They had just signed a guy named Wes Iwundu, um, who, uh, who literally had never been with the team. He had never practiced with the team. And, and the Hawks needed someone to play small forward for them. They, they chose to play Wes Iwundu, who'd never practiced, rather than playing Jalen Johnson. Jalen Johnson only played like nine minutes, and Wes Iwundu played 23 minutes at small forward. That shows you how far Jalen Johnson has to progress in his game to get to the point where he's part of an NBA rotation. He's, he's currently on the Hawks because there are guys who are out. Um, he did but, play on but, Christmas. He did yeah. play yesterday on Christmas. Yeah, but like I said, he barely played. Um, Jason, I can't tell if you're happy or sad about this. <laughs> <laughs> I, hey, he is part of the brotherhood. I want Jalen to succeed. Um, I, I'm not pulling for him as much as some other guys, but can I, we come I, back like to, to can we come back to Cam Reddish really quick? I feel yeah. like Cam Reddish to me feels like somebody who is going to get like he's going to get like three or four contract offers this summer, and they're all going to be very different from each other. Like, oh, well, uh, let's be clear about his contract situation. He is extension eligible. He's not, he's not, a free, he's agent. not free agent eligible next. If the Hawks don't sign him to an extension, then he would be a free agent at the end of next year. Again, the he's and it'll be so all over the match. place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I, I think you're right. He would get a bunch of, of, uh, I think there are a lot of teams out there that would be very, very intrigued by Cam Reddish and, and be willing to make some interesting investment in him. The qu big question for him is do the Hawks take that off the table? by by signing him to an extension this summer could also be interesting trade bait because in because some teams are going to value him in in radically different ways just depending on how they look at his injury history and his ability to be you know a first teamer as opposed to a second teamer yeah uh, let's be can, clear if there are uh big name players who who are are available at, at the trade deadline this year um cam reddish and deandre hunter are two of the uh, trade chits that the Atlanta Hawks will be dangling as they seek to get better. Cam's been involved. There have been trade talks about him for a while. Uh, the Hawks were bad for a few years and stocked up on a lot of draft picks and they drafted well. And they got a lot of guys who like, you know, are like Cam. They're very intriguing. They aren't fully formed yet. And uh, yeah, I, I think I wouldn't be at all surprised if Cam gets up getting traded. It's funny when, whenever the Hawks are on national TV, which is a lot because they have Trey young, they mentioned Cam Reddish as one of those guys like, yeah, we're going to see him break out. We're going to do something. And every time they're on national TV, he normally falters, I think. But when you see him have a pretty good game, it's when the Hawks are just on local TV and you just kind of read about it or hear about it on Sports Center, And he's kind of like a byline like, oh, by the way, Cam Reddish had like 22 points. I think for Cam Reddish, he just needs to not be on national TV. If he's on, not on national TV, he has a chance to kind of blossom into the zone and then maybe have a breakout performance in a nationally televised game down the road. So he'd be great on the Pistons. Exactly. Well, the Pistons, here's the thing. The Pistons actually get their fair share of nationally televised games. They're just not on ESPN. They're on like NBA TV. So I that get to watch get, That doesn't count. That doesn't, oh, it counts for so me. Cam Reddish, me Cam Reddish to the Washington Wizards. Come on down, buddy. Yeah, there you go. So I can watch him all the time. And I go, hey, guys, no, this guy's really good. No, trust me. You, you didn't see it. It was on local 
access the channel it's fine um and we have yes, thrown think- some we have thrown some serious shade at Orlando and Detroit. <laughs> I threw podcast. my own shade at Detroit. I, I threw, I started this thing. This is my team. I, I can do Donald, that. Donald teed it up for me. I, I'm not uh, to dump on Detroit. Uh, it's got enough problems. Yeah. Hey. I mean, look, we still have the Lions. They're not even, like the Pistons aren't even the worst team in the city. So we're good. Shout out to the Red Wings though. They're doing good. Um, I do want to move on. I want to close out with a, a team that has had multiple Blue Devils, including one that was formerly on the Pistons. And that is the Los Angeles Clippers. They currently have Luke Kennard and Justice Winslow. And I will start with Luke Kennard because Luke Kennard is firmly in the rotation. He's been playing pretty well this year. He, his scoring has been up and down. Uh, but he averages 11.7 points per game. He scored a season-high 27 back on December 18th, so he's been doing pretty well as of late. He missed the most recent game for the Clippers due to the hip injury, but hopefully that's just a minor issue that may keep him out a couple of days because his shooting is going to be super important for this team if the Clippers want to kind of make a move on the top four in the Western Conference. They're currently fifth. 17 and 15, we just found out yesterday they lost Paul George for three weeks due to an elbow injury. So they're really going to need his shooting now because Paul George, who was counted on to do a lot of the scoring uh, with Kawhi Leonard being in and out of the lineup, a lot of the scoring now is going to have to fall on some of these guys that are towards the second unit or that middle uh, of the first tier unit. So, Hey, hey Donald, that, do you, is mm-hmm. Kennard going to become the starter for Paul George, do you think? I don't know because they list him as weird. They list Paul George as a shooting guard and they list Luke Kennard as a small forward. But as we both know, they're both about the same size. So uh, like Luke Kennard is maybe an inch smaller than Paul George. So I feel like Luke Kennard would be a prime candidate to get more touches and get more minutes specifically because they have uh, multiple guys like every other basketball team out due to COVID. So you would think that Luke Kennard would use this as an opportunity to move into the starting lineup. But you just never know with the L.A. Clippers because they've been up and down and very inconsistent all year. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that as a team, they just are very inconsistent beyond the arc when it comes to shooting. And they rely on the three quite a bit when it comes to just trying to elevate past the other team. Paul George was a big reason for that. He's not not on the team for the next three weeks. Luke Kennard is going to have to pick up the shooting and the scoring bit quite a bit for over the next 10 days or so while they work to get people back into the lineup. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with Luke Kennard, but I think Luke Kennard for now is firmly with the LA Clippers and they really enjoy having him as part of the team. Another guy who joined the team this year, but has not been doing much is justice Winslow. He only averages like less than 10 minutes a game. So he's not doing a lot, but again, with Paul George being hurt with a lot of guys being out due to COVID, he has an opportunity at this moment over the next 10 days or so to carve out more minutes if he can, but he needs to make the most of his time on the court. He doesn't shoot very well from beyond the arc. He doesn't shoot well uh, from two. He hasn't reached double figures in any of his games this year. So we all know he's capable of doing that. So he's going to have to do that if he wants more playing time this year, because once the the big guys come back, if he hasn't made himself and made an impact to the point where they think, Hey, we need him as part of this rotation. He's going to disappear further and further down the bench. Donald, I wanted to add one more guy to our to our tracker here uh, because this was a, a player that Duke fans, I think, pretty universally loved and sort of wished he he would have stuck around. Although we understand that he had to had to leave and, and get his shot in the NBA was Trey Jones. We talked about when he got drafted uh, in the second round two years ago how he was probably going to spend a lot of time in the 
in the G League, which he did last year. Um, but this year has been with the Spurs for the whole season and is averaging. He's not he's not like a key rotation piece, but he's averaging 11 minutes a game and is is clearly a part of the Spurs this year. Um, so I'm just excited that that Trey Jones is getting regular NBA playing time. His shooting still uh, leaves something to be desired. It seems like he's still working on it, but his career is young and uh, hopefully he continues to improve. So I'm excited that Trey Jones is getting regular NBA minutes uh, in his second season. Yeah, I am too. And and honestly, he has a great comparison to look up to. It, again, it happens to be his brother uh, and just being able to carve out NBA minutes and work your way into finding a role on a team. I think he can do that with the Spurs. Uh, and, and he's shown so far that he has the capability to, you know, stay up there and, and kind of do work again. I think you need to improve some of the things in his game uh, and just be more consistent because in the NBA consistency can get you a long way. So as long as he can maintains that and improves in some of his areas, I think he's going to have a very nice career in the NBA, maybe not fully with the Spurs, but he'll be able to get a contract where he can get uh, some uh, hopefully eight figure money uh, in the court over the course of his career. So for that, I think that will do it for episode 372 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We talked about Clemson. We talked about the NBA. I think that's enough for today. But we will be back at some point after that Clemson game to recap that and preview the weekend game against Notre Dame. 22, 2022 is on the horizon. So if you want to contact us before 2021 is out, email us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Also, like, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you find your podcast. And a friendly announcement for those of you who listen on Spotify. Spotify now allows you to rate the pod. So hopefully you will all show us some five-star love over there, as well as over an Apple or everywhere else that you find your podcast. So for Jason Evans and for Sam Klein, I am Donald Wine. Thank you, as always, for listening. And now, Duke Band, take us home. So did I tell you guys my wife has COVID? Oh no. No. So, I'm so we, sorry. We, we went to Disney. We come back from Disney a couple of days later. She's <laughs> I got a little bit of a fever. I'm like, you got COVID. So she takes a test. She's got COVID. I had slept in the bed with her. You know, we literally like we're cuddlers, like breathing on yeah. each other all night for every night of my life, you know. Um once we found she had it, I, I moved to a different bedroom, but we had been within 10 feet of each other, you know, 22 you out of 24 it. hours of the day. Both my kids are here with us. We've done nothing but stay home, be together. We, we love playing games. So we've been around a little table, you know, playing Catan and Puerto Rico and these other games that we play all the time. All of us tested. None of us have it, but her. And, hey. and she took a PCR. Uh, or did she just take a rapid test? No, we just took a rapid test. But I mean, she, okay. she clearly, there's no question. She, she, she lost a little bit of, of smell and taste for okay. like 12 hours or so. She's yeah. getting better now. She's, you know, but uh, it's amazing to me, considering how, um, how, how transmissible, transmissible it is. this stuff it's is. that you're the only one. Yeah. That, that she's the only one and that, um, that none of the three of us got it. And, and it, both my, like I boosted about a month and a half ago. Both my kids got boosters at the very beginning of December. The boosters fucking work. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, I mean, I was I know people who 
are couples and one got it, but not the other. And they're like, there's no possible way this could have happened. Right. Like they, just like you, they're together all the time. They're like, Hey, for some reason, that's just how it works. 